0: I'm most pleased to welcome you all to this launching of a new edition of Hayek's Constitution of Liberty, first published some 50 years ago. In my mind, it is without question Hayek's most important work in which he attempts to lay bare the foundations of a free and open society. The reception that Hayek's book originally received to the extent that it was even acknowledged by the scholarly community was often hostile and at best lukewarm. And this was a source of some disappointment to Hayek who had invested so much effort and time in writing. However, over the years its reputation as an important treatise has grown to the point where today no serious study of the criteria for a free society can avoid dealing with Hayek's claims. I first read the Constitution of Liberty when it was originally published in the summer before I entered graduate school at the University of Chicago to study under Hayek. While I was terribly impressed by the enormous erudition that the book displayed, I remember being disappointed with Hayek's notion of how extensive the actions of government could be and actually remain consistent with our understanding of what a free society is. My my view was hardly original and remains consistent with, uh, sorry, hardly original and reflected what turned out to be a fairly common criticism of Hayek's theory. The distinction in perspective, it turns out, was largely the result of the difference in how Hayek Conceive the nature of rights. Like Hume, the intellectual whom Hayek most admired, Hayek rejected any conception of natural rights, that is, rights that adhere to all men at all times, in all circumstances, in favor of the notion that rights are prescriptive and are the result of an evolutionary process that reflects the peculiar history of any society. While my disappointment in his conception of freedom remains, I am now far more sympathetic to the reasons why he envisaged rights as taking their form through historical development as one of many instances of spontaneous order. Indeed, I regard Hayek's theory of spontaneous order as his most important contribution to social philosophy and one of the seminal ideas in social theory And in none of his writings does he discuss this theory in its political dimensions in more detail than in the Constitutional Liberty. To discuss this book, we're privileged to have with us this afternoon three people who are intimately familiar with Hayek's work. Professor Bruce Caldwell, Mr. George Soros, and Professor Richard Epstein. Our first speaker is Bruce Caldwell, currently Professor of Economics at Duke University and Director of the Center for the History of Political Economy. He is the general editor of Hayek's Collected Works, of which this new edition of the Constitutional Liberty is the latest volume published. Caldwell himself has edited four of Hayek's most important works in the series. Did I get that right for I think that's right. uh, among the new editions of The Road to Serfdom and the Counter-Revolution of Science. He's also the author of an important study of Hayek's thought, Hayek's Challenge and Intellectual Biography. All of us who appreciate Hayek's contribution to the economic and social sciences owe a debt to Professor Caldwell for having undertaken the editorship of the collected works.
1: Well, Ronald, thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm going to talk a little bit today about how Hayek came to write the Constitution of Liberty, but I want to uh, uh, first recognize Ronald uh, as the editor of this magnificent volume. Uh, I felt that the Collected Works was very fortunate to be able to get someone who was uh, on the scene when Hayek published the book. And indeed, uh, Ronald didn't mention, but he he wrote a. uh, he was the book review editor of the New Individualist Review. And uh, volume one, number one, in April 1961, contained his uh, critique of Hayek's uh, views. And uh, Hayek actually wrote a response. And to give you an idea, I mean, Ronald was very modest in his, uh, in his uh, portrayal of his own views. But the response that Hayek wrote was the only, to my knowledge, review or response to, to something that someone wrote that he published later in in his own uh, collections of of works. It was published in Studies in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics in 1967. So uh, I found the exact right person for the job. And and, uh, I will just also, for those of you who know the Constitution of Liberty, uh, one of the big differences between this volume and the original volume is that instead of having endnotes, they're uh, formulated as footnotes. So you can actually just look down at the bottom of the page and see everything that Hayek was saying. And believe me, you could read the, uh, the end notes as a volume in itself in the old edition. Well, now you have that stuff right, right down at the bottom of the page. So it's a magnificent volume, and uh, I thank you for your, your contributions. So it, it's a little hard looking at the archival record uh, to figure out exactly when Hayek decided uh, to write the Constitution of Liberty. Uh, there are a few hints I will mention a few of these and then offer a conjecture as to how he came to write it. Uh, The one hint that we have is a letter to Fritz Machlup in November of 1953, when he says, I'm beginning to have definite plans for that positive complement to the road to serfdom, which people have so long been asking me to do. So I mean, the mind reels, who are the people? Uh, Maybe it's people in the Mont Pelerin Society, that's one possibility. Uh, Another possibility would be people like Alvin Hansen and John Maynard Keynes, both of whom uh, wrote, uh, Hansen wrote a review uh, in The Atlantic of uh, The Road to Serfdom where he said that Hayek talks about good planning and bad planning but doesn't tell us how to distinguish the two. Uh, Keynes, in his letter, famous letter to Hayek that he wrote uh, on his way to Bretton Woods, uh, said, you admit here and there that it is a question of knowing where to draw the line, you agree that the line has to be drawn somewhere and that the logical extreme is not possible, but you give us no guidance, whatever, about where to draw it. So it may well be that he was responding at least proximate, uh, as a proximate cause to some of these uh, criticisms that said, well, okay, you've, got, you've written a great critique of, of central planning in The Road to Serfdom, but what is your preferred society? What would be the preferred setup? Um, if that's the proximate cause, I think, though, that this actually is a book that is the logical conclusion of a project that Hayek started as long back as 1937, that he started writing in 1939, but never finished. He called this project the Abuse and Decline of Reason Project. It was his war effort. Uh, He worked on it diligently uh, through about the middle of the war, and it was to be two volumes. In the first volume, he was going to trace the spread of two ideas that he thought were bad ideas. Uh, socialism and scientism, and how they grew up together, moved from uh, France to Germany to England to the United States, obviously taking very different forms in each one of these countries. Each had its own indigenous form, but the enthusiasm for scientific planning of society, the idea scientism might be called the engineering mentality, the idea that you can engineer, socially engineer society in the same way that engineers design and build bridges, was, was something that was a, a dangerous set of ideas that grew up through time. The second volume in this two-volume work was to show the results of this, uh, of this movement, and this was to be based on uh, the, the sort of ideas that are contained in The Road to Serfdom. About halfway through the war, he said, well, I don't have to write this big, uh, big two-volume book. I'm becoming more concerned about the sort of political uh, uh, setup that we'll be facing uh, after the war is over, so perhaps I should offer my warning in the road to serfdom." And, and he worked exclusively on that, never finishing the Abuse of Reason project. However, uh, he did publish uh, bits and pieces of it. One is his famous scientism essay. Another is uh, uh, six chapters from that, uh, talking about the French developments uh, in the counter-revolution of science. But most importantly, uh, an essay called Individualism True and False. Now, this essay was to have been the very opening essay of the Abuse of Reason Project. And the reason that I trace back the Constitution of Liberty uh, to Individualism True and False is that if you read them together, you'll see many of the uh, important themes in the Constitution of Liberty expressed in uh, ind- Individualism True and False. Uh, one of the ideas is the profound difference between the Enlightenment as it took place uh, in Scotland versus France. Uh, the Scottish Enlightenment, he thought as embodying Individualism True, the French Enlightenment attached particularly to the person of Descartes and the writings of Descartes uh, as individualism false. Uh, the notion of the importance of limiting coercive power of the state to those circumstances in which it is indispensable to reducing coercion by men of other men, people of other people. This is the role of coercion. Is there an individualism true and false? Um, the notion that limits of human knowledge had an implication for the sort of legal rules that you should uh, embrace, uh, because of the limits of a and the limits of human knowledge. Obviously, being a key idea in the entire Hayekian work, um, uh, that it it had an implication to use simple rules, general rules, and rules that were prospective in terms of their application. He felt that these would be the best sorts of rules in a world in which knowledge was dispersed and imperfect. Another theme is that most successful societies have institutions in which fallible, ignorant, or evil people can do the, most, the least harm. Uh, and for him, uh, this included uh, democracy, to be sure, but also strong constitutional restraints on the power of uh, the government to interfere in a private sphere of individual activity. The importance, obviously, also of the rule of law. And finally, the tension is mentioned in individualism, true and false, between different sorts of equalities. Equality before the law versus egalitarian calls for distributive justice, and that, in fact, these two uh, are often in tension, or or, in fact, necessarily in tension. So how did he come about? So these are some of the ideas that are in individualism, true and false. We know that he started work on this in more... Uh, with more vigor in the mid-50s, and here is an example, I think, of Hayek's superb grantsmanship, okay? He actually convinced the Guggenheim Foundation uh, to give him a grant so that he and his second wife could duplicate, 100 years to the day, um, John Stuart Mill's trip across Italy, Greece, and and the Mediterranean. Yes, he got that grant. So, Um, He took this travel, took an extensive travel, but, of course, he could travel a lot more quickly than John Stuart Mill was able to. So he stopped off in Cairo to give four lectures. And uh, the lectures were ultimately published under the title The Political Ideal of the Rule of Law. And this forms uh, the central chapters uh, in the book of uh, The Constitution of Liberty. When he returned from this trip, he he said in uh, some interviews... Uh, In autumn 1955, the plan for the Constitution of Liberty stood clearly before my mind. Uh, From there, he spent a year, uh, there's three sections uh, in the Constitution of Liberty, so he spent a year on each of the three sections, and then a final year uh, improving his prose for the entire book. He finished his manuscript, he reports, on May 8th, 1959, which was Hayek's 60th birthday. Uh, It was a happy coincidence, but I guess he was probably aiming to get it done by then. And it was officially published February 9, 1960. Uh, as Ronald said, it did not uh, receive immediate uh, acclamation. Uh, its its uh, influence, I think, has grown through time. Uh, for those who don't know the book, uh, of course, and per- this audience in particular, an interesting chapter is the epilogue, uh, Why I Am Not a Conservative, uh, from all reports, although he never uh, it- it said why he wrote this in terms of the people who were on the scene. Uh, this was a, an address that he had given at the 1957 Mont Pelerin meetings, and apparently uh, the object of his attack, uh, he says this part in the epilogue, uh, it's, it was directed against the recent attempt to transport to America the European type of conservatism, uh, which he felt uh, would be alien to the American tradition. And apparently Russell Kirk's book, uh, The Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot, uh, was his target for for this particular chapter, Uh, but always one that uh, when when someone who doesn't know anything about Hayek and you hand them the book, it it, it gives them pause uh, to see that title as the epilogue. Uh, Hayek scholars differ as to which of his two grand books that they like best, Constitution of Liberty... Or law, legislation, and liberty. I must say that in terms of the themes that Hayek addresses in terms of his evolutionary theory and emphasis on rules and orders, one with this is something that I I think is extremely important in Hayek's work. But he said a lot of that stuff in articles in the 1960s and early 1970s. And some of those articles, in fact, I think he put some of the ideas even better. Whereas the Constitution of Liberty is something that is is truly a work that is conceived as. Uh, an organic whole, and uh, so my vote would be for the Constitution of Liberty, and I'm sure you'll be happy to hear that, but, or maybe not care, but uh, anyway, that's my vote. So I'll, I'll end there. Thank you.
0: Our second speaker is, I'm sure, known to all of you and needs little introduction. Besides being a financier and philanthropist of international repute, George Soros has written extensively on the nature of markets and the role of government creating and sustaining flourishing economies. Before a successful career in the financial markets, Mr. Soros studied the LSE under Karl Popper, F.A. Hayek's close friend, I might actually say closest friend, whose emphasis on the open society is evident in Soros' funding of dissident movements behind the Iron Curtain. Mr. Soros is also the founder of the Open Society Institute and the author of Underwriting Democracy, Encouraging Free Enterprise and Democratic Reform Among the Soviets and in Eastern Europe. While the differences in viewpoint between Mr. Soros and Professor Hayek are extensive and profound I am sure that he is among those who appreciate Hayek's tremendous contribution to establishing a liberal economic order. Mr. Solis.
2: Thank you. Uh, Hayek is uh, generally regarded as the apostle of a brand of economics, which holds that the market will assure the optimal allocation of resources as long as the government doesn't interfere. It's a highly formalized and mathematical theory whose two main pillars are the efficient market hypothesis and the theory of rational expectations. Uh, It's usually uh, called the Chicago School and it has come to dominate the teaching of economics in the United States. I refer to it as market fundamentalism. I've developed an alternative conceptual framework which is diametrically opposed to the efficient market hypothesis and rational expectations it's built on the two twin pillars of fallibility and reflexivity and i firmly believe that those principles are in accordance with hayek's ideas we can't both be right if i'm right market fundamentalism is wrong And, to be right, I must be able to show some inconsistency in Hayek's ideas, and that's what I propose to do. Let me start with Hayek's influence on my thinking. I was a student in the London School of Economics in the late 1940s, and I was reading the great methodological controversy which took place between Popper and Hayek in Economica in the early 1940s. I considered myself a disciple of Popper, but in that controversy, I was on Hayek's side. Hayek inveighed against what he called scientism, namely the slavish imitation of Newtonian physics. Popper argued in favor of what he called the doctrine of the unity of science, or rather, of the unity of method. That is to say that the same methods and criteria apply to all scientific disciplines. I was drawn to this controversy by my interest in the writings of of Karl Popper. I had read his book, Open Society and Its Enemies, in which he argued that the incontrovertible truth is beyond the reach of the human intellect. uh, And ideologies that claim to be in possession of the ultimate truth are bound to be false therefore they can be imposed on society only by repressive methods this helped me to understand the similarity between the nazi and communist regimes and having lived through both of them in hungary it made me a great impression on it made a great impression on me This led me to Popper's theory of scientific method. Popper claimed that scientific theories can never be verified, they can only be falsified. That means that their validity must be regarded as provisional and they must forever remain open to falsification by testing. The main merit of of this theory, in my opinion, is that it avoids all the problems connected with proving scientific theories beyond any doubt, and it establishes the importance of testing. Only theories that can be falsified by testing qualify as scientific. While I was admiring the elegance of Popper's theory, I was, I was also studying elementary economics. I was struck by, the, by a contradiction between the theory of perfect competition, which postulated perfect knowledge, with Popper's theory, which asserted that perfect knowledge was unattainable. The contradiction could be resolved by recognizing that economic theory can't meet the standards of Newtonian physics. That's why I sided with Hayek, who warned against the slavish imitation of natural science and took issue with Popper, who asserted the doctrine of the unity of method. Hayek argued that economic agents base their decisions not on reality, but on their interpretation of reality, and the two are never the same. That's what I call fallibility. Hayek also recognized that decisions based on imperfect understanding are bound to have unintended consequences. But Hayek and I drew diametrically different inferences from this insight. Hayek used it to extol the virtues of the invisible hand, which was the unintended consequence of economic agents pursuing their self-interest. I used it to demonstrate the inherent instability of financial markets. In my theory of reflexivity, I assert that the thinking of economic agents serves two functions. On the one hand, they try to understand reality. That's the cognitive function. On the other, they try to make an impact on the situation, and that's the participating or manipulative function. The two functions connect reality and the participants' perception of reality in opposite directions. As long as the two functions work independently, they each produce determinate results. But when they operate simultaneously, they interfere with each other by introducing an element of uncertainty into both the participants' understanding and the actual course of events. I call the interplay between the two functions that gives rise to the uncertainty, reflexivity. The two-way connection between the cognitive and manipulative functions works as a feedback loop. The feedback is either positive or negative. The positive feedback reinforces both the prevailing trend and the prevailing bias and leads to a mispricing of financial assets. Uh, Negative feedback corrects the bias. At one extreme lies equilibrium, at the other are uh, the financial bubbles. They occur when the mispricing goes too far and becomes unsustainable, and the boom is then followed by a bust. In the real world, positive and negative feedback Are intermingled and the two extremes are rarely, if ever, reached. Thus, the general equilibrium postulated by the efficient market hypothesis turns out to be an extreme case with little relevance to reality. Frank Knight was the first to identify the unquantifiable uncertainty inherent in financial markets. In 1921, Uh, Keynes and his followers elaborated his insight although they still couched their theories in the form of equations in order to make them acceptable to the economics profession. Adherents of classical economics by contrast sought to eliminate the uncertainty connected with reflexivity from their subject matter. Hayek was one of them. Lionel Robbins who had brought Hayek to the LSE, was another. How did Hayek do it? According to Bruce Caldwell, Hayek drew a distinction between two types of opinions, constitutive and speculative. Constitutive opinions are those that cause some social phenomena to occur. Speculative opinions are those that people form in order to explain phenomena. I contend that this was a purely artificial distinction because speculative ideas can influence the occurrence of phenomena just as easily as constitutive ones. But it allowed Hayek to ignore reflexivity. Lionel Robbins found another basis for eliminating reflexivity which was more influential. At any rate, that's the way I was taught at LSE. Robbins defined the subject matter of economics as the allocation of limited resources among alternative uses. He argued that studying the conditions of supply and demand themselves was outside the scope of economics, and therefore supply and demand curves should be taken as independently given. The intersection of the two curves then determines the equilibrium price. By this methodological subterfuge, Robbins uh, managed to eliminate the effects that the mispricing of financial assets can have on both the demand and supply curves. In other words, he could eliminate reflexivity. The methodological debate in Economica took place in the context of a larger political controversy on the role of the state in the economy. Hayek and Robbins were on one side, Keynes and socialist planners on the other. I contend that Hayek subordinated his methodological arguments to his political bias. That's the source of his inconsistency. In the Economica, He attacked scientism. But after the end of the Second World War, when the communist threat became more acute, he overcame his methodological qualms and became the apostle of market fundamentalism, with only a mild rebuke for the excessive use of quantitative methods in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. Since he was fighting communism, a scientific theory that proved that market participants pursuing their self-interest assure the optimal allocation resources was too convenient to reject. But it was also too good to be true. Human beings act on the basis of their imperfect understanding and their decisions have unintended consequences. That means, that makes human affairs less predictable than natural phenomena, and Hayek was right in opposing scientism. At the time of the economic articles, Popper was somewhere in between Hayek and the socialist planners. He was just as much opposed to the threat of communism uh, as Hayek, but he advocated what he called piecemeal social engineering, rather than, let's say, fair. In this dispute, I was on Popper's side, but Popper and Hayek were not that far from each other, and the methodological discussion between them was very enlightening. I was influenced by both of them, and I also found fault with both of them. I should like to emphasize that by identifying Hayek's inconsistency, and political bias, I don't mean to demean him, but to improve our understanding of financial markets and other social phenomena. We are all biased and inconsistent in one way or another. And with the help of reflexivity, our misconceptions play a major role in shaping the course of history. Exactly because perfection is unattainable, it makes all the difference how close we come to understanding reality. Recognizing that the efficient market hypothesis and the theory of rational expectations are a dead end would constitute a major step forward. That's what the Institute of New Economic Thinking, INET, is seeking to achieve. The (coughs) The political controversy on the role of the state in the economy is raging in full force today. But the standards of political discourse have greatly deteriorated since the articles in Economica. At that time, the two sides engaged in illuminating arguments. Now they hardly talk to each other. That's why I was so pleased to accept this invitation to the Cato Institute. As I see it, The two sides in the current disputes have each got hold of one half of the truth, which they proclaim to be the whole truth. It was the hard right that took the initiative by arguing that the government is the cause of all our difficulties and the so-called left, insofar as it exists, has been forced to defend the need for regulating the private sector and providing government services. Although I'm often painted as the representative of the far left, and I'm certainly not free of political bias, I I readily recognize that the other side is half right in claiming that the government is wasteful and inefficient and ought to function better. But I also continue to cling to the other half of the truth, namely that financial markets are inherently unstable and need to be regulated. Above all, I am profoundly worried that those who, pro- who proclaim half-truths as the whole truth, whether they are from the left or the right, are endangering our open society. I believe that both Hayek and Popper would share that concern. Those of us who are concerned with the protection of individual liberty ought to work together to restore the standards of political discourse that used to enable our democracy to function better. Thank you.
0: Thank you, you, Mr. Soros. Our final speaker, is Richard Epstein, Lawrence J. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University, and Director of the Law and Economics Program at the University of Chicago. Professor Epstein is a fellow of the Cato Institute, and the author of numerous works on freedom and the law. The impact of his writings on legal studies is enormous and he has been voted as one of the most influential American legal theorists of modern times. It is indeed a pleasure to welcome Professor Epstein to this panel.
3: Well, thank you. I'm going to try and speak over the fan. Evidently, technology seems to have failed at the Cato institution. And, you know, to try to talk about Hayek in the Hayek Auditorium is a very daunting task. The man went through multiple phases, had all sorts of small inconsistencies in his own writing, and, in fact, was, I do not think of as a dogmatic kind of market type, but rather somebody who was trying to figure out how he could take his native intuitions as a social democrat from Austria and see how he could apply them to a whole variety of phenomena, dealing with the creation of property rights all the way through the financial markets. In order to do so, I'm going to sort of pick up on some of the themes that have been mentioned here and I'm going to do so mainly to stress my differences with Hayek rather than my similarities and to do so for a very simple reason, which is the greatness of his work, which is embodied particularly in such essays as the uses of knowledge in society, I think is indisputable and what I'd like to do therefore is to indicate what I think to be some of the corrections that I would want to make on that theory. And I'm going to start off with something that Ron Hamaway referred to, which is Hayek's antipathy with respect to natural law and his view that essentially the only way in which you could understand the evolution of legal doctrine and social thought is by taking some kind of an evolutionary and progressive kind of process. And my basic response to that is, I do not think that Hayek understood the way in which natural law was understood by its most ardent proponents and therefore is guilty to some extent of a mischaracterization of the way in which this thing worked. Uh, If you go back to the origins of natural law, they start in Roman times in quite explicit fashion, and what you're doing is you're trying to get a group of people to figure out how it is you put a legal system together when all the modern tools of analysis which developed in the 19th and 20th century were not available to them. Uh, So what they did, in effect, was to think of a legal system as one that had kind of two characteristics which indicated something about its viability. One of those was the sense that there seemed to be an internal coherence to the rules once they were developed, such that if you started with the premises and tried to solve particular problems, you would usually come up with answers that didn't explode or become, frankly, absurd. And the other thing was to see if you could find a kind of generality of these principles across all sorts of places and all places in the world. And it turns out that Hayek was wrong about the universality of natural law. If you go back and you study Roman law, there are basically two portions of it which which you should give somewhat different responses. One of them is the sort of the basic categories of legal analysis. And these have not changed in 2,000 years. And if you wanted to summarize as a first approximation the way in which a legal system ought to work, it would be, in effect, joint consensual transactions, yes, coercive transactions imposed by the state or indeed by any private party, no. Uh, The principles of this sort were widely accepted in virtually every legal system and the differences between the mainly lay and the level of formality that was given in order to validate those particular consensual transactions which the state or some private agency was going to enforce. And so the evolution that Hayek spoke was never with the question as to the dominance of the fundamental proposition uh, that coercive transactions are negative sum and voluntary transactions are positive sum as a series of presumptions, rather all the evolution take place in figuring out what the mechanics were for putting these things into place. And in order to do that, you actually need to have a fairly large and complicated state if only to be able to put such things in place as a statute of fraud so you could have writing to solve evidentiary problems and recordation systems so that you could keep titles in a relatively orderly fashion. And if Hayek had been a little bit more, I think, respectful of the natural law tradition, he would have found it not as an enemy, but rather as something which would have been used as an ally. And then he could have tried to figure out where it was that this particular system broke down, why it is that all voluntary transactions are not good, and all coercive transactions are not bad. And in order to do that, what you would have to do is have a kind of a comprehensive sense of what a social welfare function looked like. And in fact, Hayek's scientism, his sort of fear of the fact that people are going to put things together often stood in the way of his ability to figure out how would you be able to integrate general rules on the one hand with specific propositions on the other. So, in some sense, I'm taking exactly the opposite side of George Soros, saying, in effect, if he had been a little bit more systematic, had tried to be a little bit more Newtonian in the way in which he had worked things, he might have been able to come up with a more persuasive presentation of a series of ideas in the Constitution of Liberty, which I think are really enormously instructive on one hand, but in certain kinds of ways are in fact incomplete. Well, what would this sort of non-scientism science sort of look like And in effect, to do this, I would go back to the world of a man who has not been mentioned here today, um, Vilfredo Pareto, and also to the English variation on this through the Calder Hicks formulas, because what these guys were trying to do is to put together social welfare functions in which the welfare of every individual in society had to be taken into account. And each of them had the following, I think, kind of social um, observation. If you could find a way in which you could increase the size of the pie, you would satisfy anybody. If it turns out that you decrease the size of the social pie, you should never want to do those kinds of things. And the difference between the two formulations is that one of them, the Pareto formula, has a distributional constraint in which nobody could be left there worse off, and at least one person has to be made better off. And the call to Hicks is greater flexibility, but essentially doesn't have that fundamental distributional constraint, which most people would defend on various kinds of fairness and so forth. If you use these kinds of definitions, it turns out that it allows you to solve some of the problems dealing with the definition of liberty, which Hayek frankly did not do all that good a job with. And so what I want to do now is to take this framework and show how it applies to what Hayek regards as one of his fundamental conceptions, which he says, if you really believe in the protection of liberty, what you have to do is to believe in the way in which you are going to control coercion. So that essentially an explication of the notion of what counts as liberty is going to require you to figure out what counts as a system of coercion. And his original definitions, which I'm not going to read to you, are incredibly muddied. And I looked at this stuff, and I said, I don't understand what this man is talking about. He surely can't leave it rest here. But later on, when he talks about it, he tries to get the thing right, and he hits at all the right cylinders, but he never quite gets the engine to work in harmony. So the basis of the analysis that Hayek understands is when you're starting to talk about the notion of coercion, it must bear at least some relationship to the libertarian notions associated with the use of force on the one hand and fraud on the other. But he says you certainly can't define it in that way because there are other things that he would regard as coercive. And so the question is how it is that you integrate this particular element into a larger theory. And what I'm going to do is to do it in parts. Rather than to try and figure out how you do it all in one fell swoop, I'm going to start with the coercion case with respect to the use of force and then turn over to another key part of the Hayekian situation, which has an immense role to play in modern economics, which is what do you do with the refusals to deal by one person with respect to other people. And I think if you try to decompose these things and follow the basic test, it turns out that the common intuitions that I have had rest on very powerful formations. And then once you understand the way the game theory works, it turns out that his theory allows you to do what Mr. Soros has been trying to do, to explain why it is a single comprehensive theory which under some circumstances can account for social successes, can also explain why it is under certain prisoner dilemma type game situations you will have social failures without regulation. So I regard the theory as essentially neutral to the question of regulation, and the question is then how does it work? Well, the first thing to do is to start with the narrowest definition of coercion, which can take place in one of two firms. Either I beat you over the head in order to take what you have, or I threaten to beat you over the head in order to have you give something to me. And in order to figure out what the social welfare function is going to look like, you have to decompose this thing into two parts. The first thing you have to do is to ask whether or not the transactions between the two parties is one that meets anything remotely like either the Call to Hicks or the Pareto standard. And at this particular point, it is not a matter of deduction. That is, the key point about any economic and social theory is that in addition to a formal apparatus, it must contain some kind of an empirical substrate. And at that point, the classical writers, from which I think all the British empiricists derive, going way back, on self-preservation says, for the most part, if forced to choose, you would rather be alive than kill somebody else, um, so that mutual survival turns out to be our optimal end. And so if you're trying to figure out how bargains might work in this crazy universe, it's easy to imagine somebody who's going to be able to pay a lot of money to somebody else to prevent him from killing them. But on the other hand, there are very, very few people who are going to be able to pay a victim enough money in order to get their kind of consent. And what that suggests is you want the baseline in a two-party situation to always defend individual autonomy against those people who are its aggressors. And then when you generalize this from two people to N people, having a rule which says that there are going to be mutual abnegation or renunciation of the use of force is going to be, if you could make it implemented, a vast improvement of any other kind of system. So at least as a first approximation is between the parties to any of these transactions, the clear social preference is in favor of the basic libertarian norm. Now it gets more complicated because you then have to ask about effects upon third parties. And here again, the arguments are really extremely powerful. If, in fact, you're talking about a voluntary transaction between A and B, which is one that works to their mutual advantage, the first-class externalities from this are going to be positive. All individuals will now be in a position where there's somebody else with whom they can trade who will have more resources in virtue of their first transaction and therefore present greater opportunities to other individuals. So that if you then cycle this by lowering transactions so as to increase the frequency of these voluntary exchanges, you're going to get a relentless set of positive sum gains which will lead to a kind of positive um, overall social improvement. So that at least under this kind of a restrictive model, the sort of the optimistic assumptions of the classical competitive equilibrium situation really seem to hold very well. Certainly they hold extremely well in comparison to what you think of as the negative externalities with respect to coercion. At that particular point, the resources of the two parties in some are sharply diminished. So every time you engage in a threat against two people, you reduce the opportunities of strangers and make them worse off. In addition, you create the kind of instability where instead of figuring, hey, you may be able to get a business opportunity, you're worried about the hinged hand of fate knocking you for a loop, and so that you engage in much more defensive activities rather than in much more expansive activities. So as a first approximation, essentially, the argument in favor of markets relative to sort of coercion is going to be enormously powerful. And when Hayek says, look, we really have to be worried about the state dictating the terms and conditions of various transactions, the reason he's got a really strong point about it is that you're going to force losing transactions on some individuals so So even though you're not going to have violence, you can still have the same kind of downward cycle which is associated, presumptively, with respect to um, centralized planning. But then it is that you come up with the issue of what do you do with respect to refusals to deal. And this becomes extremely important because it was precisely this particular issue which made Hayek be so nervous about trying to define his definition of coercion so that the only thing that coercion covered was the threat and the use of force. And in order to get this thing right, what you have to do is to start making some very key distinctions, which Hayek doesn't quite make explicitly, although he hints at them. And the key distinction you have to make is that there is a vast difference in trying to estimate the way in which you look at refusals to deal in a society which turns out to have open entry and lots of competitive sources of supply, and a situation in which there is either a legal or a natural monopoly. And one of the interesting things is if you go back to the height of English laissez-faire, all the careful judges who wrote about this issue understood this particular distinction, and they were aware that the particular arrangements with respect to refusals to deal that might work in competitive markets would not work in the other. Um, So how does this thing start to break itself out? Now let me see if I can explain. I may take an extra minute or two. In a competitive market, the only way that you could get to an effective equilibrium is to allow people to refuse to deal with other individuals. If, in fact, you're going to force transactions, then you're always going to have resources going in a dizzying rate or one person after another, and you can never figure out whether it's the employer who's entitled to force the employee or vice versa so that the system essentially is going to define as coercion ordinary market behavior and everything will collapse. But once you start to have a natural monopolist, That is, a single supplier who can supply the market at lower cost than any two suppliers, or even worse, a legal monopolist who's given a thing from the state. Now you have an asymmetry. He's the only one to whom all these other people can turn, and so therefore he has this immense kind of power. And the standard tradition with respect to regulation always took the position that regulation was a counterweight with respect to monopoly power. Hayek sort of sees this, but he thinks that the only constraint that you put in place is a non-discrimination constraint, which is certainly one part of the picture. But the entire history of rate regulation with respect to natural monopolies as it develops in the late 19th and early 20th century indicates that you also have to have reasonableness constraints on the rates that can be charged and you develop a huge literature on exactly how it is that you determine what these rates are going to be. Now, the reason I want to stress this stuff is I think it gives you a very different view of laissez-faire from the one that George Soros presented because it suggests in effect that what laissez-faire means is not that you leave the unfettered operation of all markets to do whatever they want on price terms. What it says in effect is that what you do is you start when you look at markets with a presumption against regulation, but that you can find certain circumstances where it's invocation will in fact lead to general kinds of improvements and that your regulation is always calibrated to that particular problem. And if we had time and you went into the specifics of regulation, you can actually show how the pre-1944 reactionary judges actually had a better sense of how to regulate than the modern judges who have lost the presumption against government regulation. Now, this also applies to financial markets. I would regard it as a caricature to say that you don't want any form of insurance or any form of regulation. But the key question to ask in this is not whether you have regulation, it's actually what the kind of techniques that you're going to use to deal with the regulations that you have. Everybody, I think, understands that when you're starting to deal with the banks, with have limited liquidity, it turns out that the run on the bank is something that can clearly happen in an unregulated market simply if all people form the expectations, rational or otherwise, that the bank is going to be illiquid. Every bank has to have, if it's going to engage in transactions, some of its money tied up in long-term assets so that if all the depositors demand a response instantaneously, things will start to break down. At that particular point, the question is, what's the optimal form of regulation? And it's at this particular point, I think, that an immense amount of caution is needed in the way in which you work this system. Because if we know that these prisoner dilemma games, which is what this turns out to be, can have negative externalities, then the question is, what's the optimal design of the system? And it is simply not sufficient under these circumstances to say that you're in favor of regulation, you have to talk about the design. And let me give you but one illustration of a point which Hayek understood. He said basically that decentralization has sort of static inefficiencies, that you may get redundancy and inefficiencies of one kind or another, but that it had in the long run a kind of a resistance against common mode failure which would bring everybody down. So if you look at something like Dodd-Frank, which contains all sorts of disastrous provisions of one kind or another, which we could talk about in the discussion theory, the great mistake of it is when you want to say that, you know, you want to have everybody trade on a clearinghouse so that you get rid of certain kind of bank errors, what you do is you substitute in a common mode error by the single regulator who's now too big to fail instead of having diffuse kinds of regulations that are done by decentralized authorities. So even in financial markets, it doesn't follow that complete centralization by government is going to be the appropriate response. And therefore, I will end on just this simple note, is the great insight of the uses of knowledge in society was the recognition of the fact that centralized information may be awkward and bulky, and that decentralized information that communicates through a price system may in turn be the better operation. Hayek, I think, overestimates the importance of intuition in making this process work, but if you can make markets more efficient, What happens is that it turns out that it's not going to be that the efficient market hypothesis is always wrong. It can't explain October whatever it was in 1987 where you get discontinuous chops, but it can certainly explain why it is that spreads in various kinds of commodity markets and so forth are consistently reduced over time for the benefit of consumers or why it is that securitization properly run allows you to access financial markets that you would never touch. So I think even on the financial side, we don't want to say that they're in inherently unstable. What we want to say is that their instability is certainly something that can emerge from these kinds of process, and that what we ought to do is to follow Hayek at least this far, which says that the presumption is generally set against regulation, but it is not irrebuttable, but if your first approximation is that you have to regulate, first think less, and then think more. And I think that's the lesson of uh, constitutional liberty at its highest ground. We know we're fallible and so we know that when we exercise state monopoly powers, a modicum of caution is surely the appropriate way in which to go. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Richard. Welcome. I'm going to spend the next month trying to... Uh, work out the
3: implications of your... <laughs> well, I went a little fast. I'm sorry. Less for you. What? Less coffee? No, no, no. I'm just drinking the pure stuff. This is vodka. I want to give uh, the panelists
0: a chance to address the other panelists if, if they have anything they'd like to add or say or ask. So...
1: Uh, Okay, I'd, I'd like to just make a couple of comments on, on George Soros's, uh, uh comments. Uh, I think that uh, George has a handle on some parts of Hayek, but misunderstands other parts of Hayek, and that if he understood those other parts of Hayek, he would identify himself, I'll say it provocatively, as a Hayekian. I don't think that that's necessarily true, but I spent the morning uh, rereading uh, the Soros lectures by George Soros, and there were just... Lots and lots of areas where uh, things that that he wrote in here, I think, are certainly consistent uh, with with many of Hayek's insights. I'm just going to mention a couple of things in your talk that I that I would disagree with, and I think that a further uh, study of Hayek you might you might uh, see my point. So first of all, Hayek and the Austrians, to my in my estimation, reject the usefulness. Of an efficient market hypothesis and a theory of rational expectations for capturing the workings of a of a market process. So, if the acceptance of those two theories is is the defining characteristic of, of being a, a market fundamentalist, then he's not he's not the sort of market fundamentalist that you uh, that you're describing. I I think a, a pithy way of putting this is that there is definitely a difference methodologically and in other realms between Chicago and Vienna. You. Uh, okay. Uh, Uh, Secondly, uh, uh, Hayek thought, this is a phrase that you used, that the financial sector is inherently unstable. Hayek thought that the financial sector was inherently unstable. His first book, after all, was Monetary Theory and the Trade Cycle. So he's he's saying monetary theories or monetary economies or credit-driven economies are unstable. Vernon Smith has done experiments where he said, as soon as you introduce credit into one of the experiments, you're going to generate cycles, and they're really hard to get rid of. Uh, uh, Cato has an annual conference on alternative monetary institutions, and I think that this is a common endeavor, uh, a a truly common endeavor, of how do you get the institutions right so that you can make money more stable? Because when money is more stable, then the rest of uh, the ability of markets to uh, coordinate dispersed information uh, I think, uh, is, is vastly improved. I'll, I'll go one, one final one. Uh, Hayek also rejected the theory of perfect competition. You said that this was one of the things that got you into uh, uh, an interest in, uh, you saw the contradiction between Popper and, and, and uh, the theory of perfect competition. Uh, Hayek has a 1946 article, The Meaning of Competition, where he argued for competition as rivalry. Uh, it, within a, mar- a market process and if, since the 1930s was very critical of the ability of static equilibrium theories to shed light on on, on the workings of a market process. So I'll just simply uh, suggest that there are elements of Hayek's uh, work that, that uh, are quite uh, compatible with, with some of the points you made. I
2: entirely agree uh, that there are many elements and uh, he has had a big influence on my thinking and I, I think that both fallibility and perfectivity are in, in basically uh, in accordance with this thinking i think he has allowed himself to be let's say expropriated uh, to some extent by the chicago school and the, and the, an, an extremist uh, view of of markets uh, which which claims that markets are perfect uh, and that of course he uh, uh, also denied in his uh, Nobel Prize uh, lecture which I thought was a, a, a reminder to the Chicago school that they've give, gone too far so I think actually going back to Hayek is, is a, very good, a very good thing uh, uh, because at that time the difference let's say, between Hayek and Popper and certainly between Hayek and me are not all that great And there is really, we could uh, work on gaining a better understanding. Uh, I am emphasizing uh, the fact that all our interpretations are bound to be uh, 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 flawed in one way or another. So we have to come to terms with with that limitation. And that's why you can't have a... A, a kind of predictive uh, pr- uh, science that you that let's say Newtonian physics uh, presented uh, you have to accept that that uh, our ability to predict and to understand to to, e- to explain and to understand is uh, uh, limited and we need to re- reduce the misconceptions if possible and that we can only do through a a debate, a discussion, critical thinking, which is the 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 point that that, um, Popper was emphasizing and unfortunately uh, we now have basically politically two sides that each got hold of one half of the truth and they can actually we both sides can prove that the other side is wrong because we are all wrong but that doesn't mean that, that that by proving that the other side is wrong that you are right so i think we we should again try to to reestablish a common ground for having critical uh, discussion and and uh, i think uh, This uh, this is an occasion where we could try to do that. Uh, So maybe we can find a common ground. I think that we would all agree that uh, um, the government regulation is a necessary evil. I don't know if we could
3: agree with that. Well, but the necessary evil means to set the presumption against it. Yeah. Uh, That's all we need you uh, no, the presumption I can move the world. I'm Archimedes. No, look,
2: I I am I happen to agree with you, because while my, while I argue uh, that markets are are uh, unstable and this uh, this instability has been artificially uh, expurgated from cu- current uh, economic uh, uh, dogma. dogma uh, I also uh, agree that regulations are inherently imperfect. In fact, in my writings I've said they are more imperfect than markets. Why? Because they are bureaucratic, they are uh, subject to special interests, and uh, very much influenced by political. Uh, uh, so, if you can avoid the regulations, you should. Okay. I, uh, we have, so we have actually, uh, 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 found common ground. Uh, uh,
3: Thank you. Okay, Richard. Okay. Well, I mean, I think Hayek to some extent uh, gets a bad rap for being sort of a Chicago type. I, I'm sort of a Chicago type, but not, but not completely. But I, I, I did write an article once, and I'm going to refer to it now because I think it was actually an accurate description of much of Hayek. And the article was called Hayekian Socialism. Uh, and in this particular argument, I argued that Hayek had very Powerful socialist instincts in terms of the way in which he conceived the obligation of society to impose, uh, to satisfy minimum standards of needs for all of its members. I'm just going to read one sentence from his chapter on Social Security to give you a drift of what it is comment a little bit upon, it and then make a couple of other points. One, it says, in the Western world, Hayek is never talking small. Some provision, we don't know how much, for those threatened by the extremes of indigence or starvation due to circumstances beyond their control has long been accepted as a duty of the community. This is not a guy who's sitting there saying, you know, I'm a social dominist, let the devil take the hindmost and so forth. What's what's left about this, and this is what drives me nuts about Hayek, is you never know when he says that there's some obligation on the community, whether it's to be done through voluntary organizations like churches and schools, whether it's to be done through the state, whether it's to be done at the local level, whatever. But you don't have to answer those questions to make it very, very clear that this guy does not believe that all market processes yield good results, and all non-market processes yield bad results. It was simply no part of what it was that he thought. Uh, The second point that I want to make is that I do not think that he was a Newtonian in his views. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. If you read passages in F.H. Hayek's work, what they do is they bring to mind the, the good part, and there are some good parts, obviously, in Robert Nozick's Anarchy, Utopia, and the State. And the key portion, I think, that was most powerful was his sort of, and it was, independent reinvention of all the common law rules, which said, in effect, that you cannot run a sensible society by having a series of pattern principles where you know what the end states are and are going to try and figure out how it is you turn the cranks to get to them. This was the argument against social planning. And what Hayek was in defense of and Nozick was in defense of, and I will list myself with respect to them that I'm in defense of, is what you do is you give yourself a set of basic stable institutions. You get rules for the acquisition of property, rules for individual autonomy, rules for voluntary exchange, rules for the prohibition against the use of force. And then what you do is you let the voluntary exchange run and see what the outcomes will be. And at the end, if you get these maldistributions and distribution, which you sometimes will get, that's when this other social safety net kicks in, preferably through voluntary means. But the key feature about this is if you run the system the resource base which you're going to have to work from is going to be far larger, and the number of people who will need the system will be far smaller, so that the chances of needing something like a formal Social Security or a Medicare system, if you let this happen, will be correspondingly diminished in terms of the way in which this goes. Now the last point I want to make is is a vehement attack on the progressive movement precisely because it refuses, at least in its current incarnation, to consider one viable element, which is the deregulation of various markets in which state monopolies have been created. So right now, for example, we're talking about divisive properties. All one has to do is to look at the situation of labor relations in the United States, where in the 1930s what we did is we took competitive labor markets, where in fact wages systematically moved up with productivity and productivity systematically moved up with intervention, all during the period when the progressives denounced these markets as failures and imposed a bilateral monopoly structure with heavy government regulation over it, such that massive discontinuities in the form of lockouts and strikes would take place with massive negative third-party situations, and then back this thing up with state power. Oh, to me, the, I could understand enormous disagreements between us, for example, on how it is you deal with market failures associated with prisoners' dilemma games or the creation of natural monopolies. Those are open squares. What I cannot understand, nobody's been able to explain to me why it is that the resources of the state should be used in order to shrink the total prior productivity and to create greater antagonisms across classes. And if you, I want you, George, to come out on the record now to say that you're in favor of the repeal of the National Labor Relations Act, and then we got something that we can talk about. Thank you. I'm serious about this. I, I can't think of anything that you said. Which would indicate that Hayek is wrong when he says this is the kind of centralized authority that we ought to dread. Um, and, and it's a menace. When these guys take after Boeing as they've done the last week, it is just a complete travesty, even under the current labor law. And politically, it's the worst possible adventurism and so forth. Let's, I'd be quite let's leave it open.
0: <laughs> Perhaps some people in the audience would like to address the panel. Let's hear the answer. The answer to the oh. Uh, what do you do with the labor status? Let me see. If I'm if not so sure it's fair to ask.
2: Oh, me. I think it's fair. Yeah. <laughs> this is a global discussion of Hayek. Yeah. Uh, uh, as I, uh, certainly as I said, I'm not really e- eager to, uh, to, to attack Hayek because I'd like to go back to the Hayek proper discussions. Uh. Uh, I'd like to to address what's wrong now because I see a real danger, genuinely I'm very concerned about a real danger for our political system, for our open society because of this uh, division where two sides have got hold of half-truths and by pointing out the deficiencies on the other side, they think that they have proven their point. And that is not the case because the fact that there are deficiencies on the other side uh, doesn't uh, uh, change the fact that there may be deficiencies on on your side also. So uh, uh, I am ready to recognize the deficiencies in arguing for, let's say, financial regulation when I look at the way the uh, the Dodd-Frank bill and its failure to address the the issues, how it was lobbied to, to, into into incomprehension and, and inconsistency by a, a special interests of various kinds, uh, so uh, the the fact that that uh, in fact the the whole issue was extremely well f- uh, framed by two articles. One was by Greenspan, who said that the genie is out of the bottle bo- uh, the bottle. Uh, the uh, uh, financial markets have become, and institutions have become so complicated that no regulator can anticipate the the uh, the, the, the results. Uh, of regulation and uh, therefore f- give up on regulation. And Barney Frank uh, replied, uh, uh, pointing out that le- leaving markets unregulated can cause financial collapse with o- horrendous consequences. Therefore, you can't afford to le- uh, to-, to let them un- unregulated. But when he tried to to uh, to prove how the Barney Frank uh, the uh, dot Frank. Uh, uh, act uh, dealt with the issues, there he was uh, at, uh, 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 lacking because e- effectively uh, it really did not address uh, the, uh, the fundamental
3: issues. So we... Okay. One little last uh, uh, comment on the finance. A little a little like
0: little we really thing. should allow okay, okay, the audience guys. because we're going to have to adjourn fairly soon <laughs> and I want to give the audience a chance to address questions to the panel. Yes.
1: This will give you a chance to address financial markets again. Wait for the mic. This will give you a chance to address financial markets again. Addressed to Professor Epstein and Mr. Soros, because um, as, you, as you both pointed out, these uh, these failures in Dodd Frank but certainly listening to Professor Epstein, that leads one back to the big question of whether or not one shouldn't have had structural reforms because that then would have dealt with
0: this refusal to deal and would have dealt with many of the other problems that evolved and I'm curious about the views of the two of you on that subject.
3: Well, I'll try to say, one is a financial, financial stability oversight board strikes me as being exactly the kind of thing that we have to worry about that Hayek talked about because of the incredible discretion as to what people are put on the list as being systematic risk and what's ones or not already we have very clear evidence that people are constantly trying to put their competitors on the list while keeping themselves off the list and so forth because they know that when there's a difference in the capital requirements, it's not going to work. I've also heard stories to say that the guys who actually do the models in the private area say that all of the public models are in fact wrong. And and so what happens is if they got the wrong model as to whether the source of risk is in the credit market or in market fluctuations and so forth, you're going to get the wrong results. And the problem, as Hayek pointed out, is if you get every bank going under government regulations that are wrong, it all collapses. If you have different banks doing different things, one may go down, and the proper response is, I think, in many cases, two things. One is it was a great mistake to have the little banks taken over by all the big banks so you have this massive concentration that we now have in the industry. And secondly, I think you have to be extremely cautious about running these kinds of bailouts, particularly when they're discretionary so that AIG survives and Lehman Brothers turns out not to do so. So I think, in effect, it's a disaster. And, of course, we didn't cover Fannie Mae. When I asked Christopher Dodd about that, he said, we didn't have time. What on earth was this man thinking? Richard, we have very few minutes left for more questions. George? Uh,
0: Perhaps you could hold off and maybe somebody else will. Yes.
3: Uh, This question for Mr. Soros, mostly. Since you and Professor
4: Epstein have come to an agreement that um, it's a good thing to start with the presumption not to regulate,
3: I'm curious what you think about uh, your fellow Democrats. I guess you're a Democrat. I've never figured you out, but I'm a Libertarian Democrat myself. There are about six of us. Maybe you're one, too, I hope. I'd like to know what you think about this thicket of regulation passed by your fellow Democrats rammed through health care reform with all of the corporate welfare that went to the
0: insurance companies. Is it possible to confine our questions to Hayek, which is actually the topic of discussion. Robert. Well,
1: I actually they can
3: find a lot of the remarks to uh, uh, agreeing on the subject of uh, beginning with a regulation. Do you mind just quickly answering, it, Mr. Torres? The uh, uh,
2: healthcare.
3: Yes. Do, you, do you, was that a good regulation?
2: Well, uh,
0: really, that's, I, that's an extremely complex question and answer.
3: I'll give a one sentence to answer.
0: <laughs> we
2: know your answer, Richard.
3: <laughs> I think,
2: I think I think the the, the idea of reforming health care and providing health care for everyone is is, is is the right idea and unfortunately uh, the in the process uh, the the uh, savings that could have been achieved for instance by uh, uh, getting uh, the to start with the the um, pharmaceutical co- companies made a fabulous deal where they bought, bought, bought it off for a peanut, uh, any further reduction in costs of, of uh, 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 medicines. And, and then the insurance companies um, dis- destroyed um, the core of the reform, which would have provided uh, a, pub- a public option. Which Forgive would me for thing So that's, that alone...
0: Oh, okay, be- because we have time for two or three more questions at the you most.
3: Sense?
0: You will get your... <laughs> 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 yes, yeah. It would be helpful if you could address your questions in terms of the subject of the panel.
1: Uh, Mr. Soros, I wonder what you think about the road to serfdom, which uh, your critic Glenn Beck has helped make
3: into a national bestseller.
2: What do I think of it? Uh, I'd have to, frankly, reread it to give you uh, my critical assessment. Uh, um, I, I I was certainly on... Both Hayek and Popper's side, in in uh, uh, regarding the uh, the um, excessive planning and and certainly communism as a uh, uh, constraint on freedom and a terrible threat to to uh, uh, to liberty. Um, but again, I think on on um, on uh, planning, I think. Uh, as long as you realize that uh, that uh, your pl- your plan is bound to be flawed, I think there is room for there is a need uh, for for planning as as well. In other words, uh, um, uh, establishing the competitive advantage of individual countries, what which industries you should focus on, and so on. So. Uh, there's a lot that can be done uh, by planning as long as you recognize that it's bound to be um, flawed and needs to be revised. It's wonderful
0: that Richard Epstein and George Soros agree, no, we agree. so completely on on this point.
3: Can I, I make a comment? Look, I think the answer about Hayek is that he was fighting against Lady Wooten and so forth about comprehensive allocation and centralized planning. But he threw out the baby with the bad water. You can't run a system where you build infrastructure, sewers, public facilities, and so forth, unless to some degree that you plan. And for that, what you have to do is to get a real appreciation of the tax structures you want, the regulatory structures you want, the permit structures you want, the subcontracting structures you want. Essentially, the way in which you have to think about it is is ninety. percent 80, maybe 80% of the world runs quite well on competitive markets, and 90% of the attention has to be given to the other 20%. And Hayek's great weakness was he did not know the techniques of regulation in areas where it was strictly necessary to have it. Mario.
1: The implications of Dodd-Frank on Hayek's concept of the rule of law
3: the level of discretion given to powerful government officials on both the consumer fraud division and with respect to the um, banking division is terrible. I've actually litigated a small piece of this known as the Durban Amendment, and what you see is there you're giving a charge to the Federal Reserve Bank to try to set interchange rates in a market that it simply does not understand, and you see complete paralysis. They've already laid on their deadline by a week. This thing is supposed to go in effect on January 21st. There's a $15 billion a year shift in cash put together by a senator whose ignorance with respect to basic economic principles is so sublime uh, that the name Senator Durbin ought never to be uttered again in polite company And, and, and that's what you talk about as sort of centralized planning this is a complete gratuitous interest group deal, there is absolutely nothing structural about this industry which has failed. In fact, it's one of the great success stories in America, is the rise of the debit card. And, you know, that's the kind of self-inflicted wound, which I hope George would agree But I don't know if you know much about debit cards, George. But um, if you do, I'd like to have your your views on the subject. There's one who, kind of time from time, uses one. It's very that's
2: interesting in the corner. that... that uh, that the federal reserve implicitly has arbitrary powers it has the mission of preserving the financial system from from collapse and when the system is endangered it it has to put the preservation of the system uh, uh, first and unfortunately exactly because it is impossible to plan uh, uh, perfectly there, there is bound to be an unforeseen situation that the Fed has to deal with. Now, in this case, it it has used the arbitrary power in a, a an extremely uh, ineffective way, where uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury Paulson uh, declared that uh, on Friday that uh, there is no bailout. On on uh, and on Tuesday, he had to reverse himself and, and bail out um, um, uh, AIG. Um, and on Thursday, he had to save the the, um, the the money market funds. So uh, he had a totally uh, he was totally lacking in understanding uh, 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 financial markets. And reacted badly, but actually, uh, his his excuse was that he he didn't have the power to intervene and to to bail out uh, Lehman. That that I think is a is is a, is a lame excuse, because if if he had done it, he could have uh, ex post facto. Uh, gotten uh, legal authority to, to to do it because in in many many cases the Fed has done used that uh, arbitrary power and and exactly because planning is bound to be imperfect there has to be an arbitrary element in 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 the uh, in the regulatory authorities if you didn't have any arbitrary powers, that would mean that you were able to devise laws, uh, uh, rules, that will cover every uh, – uh, that would have been comprehensive uh, uh, don't uh, success of, of, of perfect knowledge.
4: Yes, please. To get back to Hayek, uh, I, Hayek, I think, all of the panelists have made it clear, was dealing with something a lot of libertarians don't bother with. How do we deal with that boundary line between the areas where most think there has to be some role for government and the area where we'd like to keep it out of? And that boundary line, defining that boundary line height doesn't do very well. And yet both George, Richard, and... Now Richard gave us a crude guideline for deciding how to make that divide. Oh, I'm very precise on that. Very precise. But both Bruce and, and George, I think, said it's important to have that dividing line but uh, Mr. Soros certainly made the point, ideally, that what, is, what a closer would say, no ideal piece of legislation survives first encounter with legislature. You know, the, the idea that, in effect, we put things into the hopper and God knows what comes out the other end, and yet that is the nature of politics. It is an interest group phenomenon. Do either Richard, again, to refine it, but Bruce and, and George give us an idea. How would they try to do that dividing line so we didn't, Use legislation when it's going to almost certainly go so far afoul that even its
3: proponents are embarrassed. Right, well, I'm just going to give one quick answer, and this is going to be in praise of Milton Friedman. Um, I think if you actually look at his academic work, Friedman's great work is on non monetary, insti- non market institutions. It's the work that he did with respect to the permanent income hypothesis, and it's the work um, that he did with respect to the way you run the money supply. And the effort that you try to do is to have non discretionary rules on whether you expand or contract money supply in order to keep price levels relatively stable so that there's one fewer dimension of uncertainty in private transaction is a very good place to start. And in fact, as John Taylor has shown, it's when we started to deviate from that particular kind of situation that we started to create the housing bubbles which then created the boom in the complementary assets and so forth. So I think in effect that you want to do exactly the opposite of what Dodd-Frank did to try to find ways to limit discretion, which means getting rid of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all the rest of that stuff rather than to give them a pass and to start on the private side. And I mean, I've heard Chris Dodd speak. It is simply a stunning condemnation of American politics that this man could have been leading uh, the financial reform. He simply does not know enough to do it, period. Um, Do you want
0: to comment on this?
3: Um,
1: I think there were philosophical as well as pragmatic reasons that Hayek was always so evasive in terms of the details uh, and I think that that would be the right word to use. Um, and uh, in terms of the philosophical reasons, uh, he recognized that there was lots of different societies that had previously established institutions. And in order to keep it at a general philosophical level, you don't want to offer uh, specific points about uh, you know, the actual policies. Milton Friedman always did. He was perfect for that. And Hayek was his counterpart. I mentioned uh, Friedman because Hayek founded the Mont Pelerin Society, in which he had people who were order liberals from Germany. He had Milton Friedman and George Stigler from Chicago and people all over the spectrum with lots of different uh, visions as to what a free society would look like. He always was trying to articulate general principles. So we can fault him for not getting down to specifics. But I think his, it was intentional. And it reflected his, uh, his general views that when dealing with complex phenomena, uh, sometimes, as far as you can get, as general principles, and then leave the details to people like, like Friedman.
3: lawyers, huh? right?
0: I'm afraid our time is now up. So, uh,
2: thank you.